Uh, welcome back to week eight of our 13-week series on church history, which will take us from the point of Pentecost uh, all the way to today. And just a reminder, there's a specific focus uh, as we go through church history, looking at the historical development, growth, and spread of Christ's church uh, across the globe. And we return from our two-week break for the Caesar season, uh, covering a different Reformation than you might think of when we talk about the Reformation period in Christ's church. Uh, before we begin this morning, though, let's uh, just everybody join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning being so incredibly thankful that you, as the author of history, use all things for our good. Even if sometimes that means using objectively bad people. Father, we ask this morning to give us wisdom and discernment to look back at these parts of history and see your magnificent hand in all of them. Father, we're thankful for your word and for the history of your church. I pray this morning for gospel preaching churches across the globe, like churches like Gospel Baptist Church in Bamenda, Cameroon, Zion Church in Lucknow, India, and so many others. Father, I pray that those churches grow and flourish independently, spontaneously, and simultaneously as you would have our church here in Georgia, Vermont, grow and flourish. I pray blessings on Pastor Brad this morning as he shows us your glory in Esther. And Father, I just pray that his preaching of your word finds fertile hearts ready to worship you this morning. We thank you for Jesus, Father, and in his holy and precious name we pray. Amen. All right, and as my dedicated AV team here uh, works through our, our AV issues. Awesome. A issues, not B. <laughs> A issues, video is working, working swimmingly. All right, well, would it be surprising to you if I told you that we're going to see this morning how God used a notorious adulterer, lecher and murderer to further the spread and growth of his church. We will be discussing just how he did that this morning as we look at the Reformation in England during the 1500s. Now, most of you have probably at least heard of uh, King Henry VIII. I know I first heard of him through an earworm of a song that we would sing as kids. You know the one, right? So my wife said, you should sing it. And then I told her, there's a reason I'm not on the worship team. So I won't be singing it this morning. Uh, <laughs> King Henry VIII rightly deserves history's harsh judgment as one of England's most uh, reprehensible kings. He notably took multiple wives, and uh, the most fortunate of those wives, he just merely dismissed and divorced. The least fortunate, uh, however, he put to death in some really gruesome ways. Yet this reprehensible and really disgusting man was the same man who defied the authority of the Roman Catholic Church, which led to breaking Roman Catholic control of the English dynasty, laying foundations for the beginning of the English or Anglican Church. So as Christians, we have no real need to shy away from this unsavory truth. In fact, scripture and history bear numerous examples of God bringing good results for humanity out of wicked actions. Not for nothing does Romans 8.28 pr promise to us that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And if you listen carefully to that, Paul does not say here that all things are good, 
but that God causes all things to work for good. And the same is true with the verse printed on top of your handout this morning, which will serve as sort of a theme for us today. So in Genesis 50, 50, 20, remember where Joseph is pointing out to his brothers how their evil actions in selling him to slavery were used by God to accomplish his good. He says, and as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. So, brothers and sisters, how liberating is it for us as Christians to condemn evil actions for what they are while still being able to trust in the Lord's provision and sovereign work in history, which will prepare for our good? And we'll see the same here today as we consider how God used King Henry's sinful actions to accomplish God's righteous purposes. We will also see the considerable costs bringing about reform in England, and not the least of which was just an immense number of human lives. Besides their common faith in the biblical God, many heroes of the English Reformation shared a common fate, which was martyrdom. They died horrific deaths defending what they knew to be right based on God's inerrant scriptures. These are people like Tyndale, Cranmer, Latimer, Ridley, and many others. They ended up going to the stake to burn for their convictions. I should also comment on our timeline this morning. Uh, Next slide, please. As you may have noticed in this week, and in the two previous weeks, I should say, the uh, prior, the two weeks prior to the English, um, sorry, the Easter services, our class is focused on the momentous events of the Reformation in the 16th century. And this focus comes in part from this apparent quickening of God's action during this time in history. But this also marks a point of departure in our own timeline. So up until now, our narrative has tried to cover the entirety of Christ's church from the beginning through the 16th century. Going forward, uh, we're going to diverge a little bit and really focus on church history that's, that leads to the strands of history leading to our own particular beliefs. So, next slide. The first thing to remember about the Reformation is that it did not entirely spring from Martin Luther. The Roman Catholic Church did not confine its corruptions and errors to Luther's Germany, but rather the entirety of the Roman Catholic Church. Neither did movements for reform come only from Germany. Luther stands as a towering figure of singular importance, of course, but as we saw last week or the last session, and we will see again today, movements for reformation arose seemingly independently, seeming spontaneously, and seemingly simultaneously in many other parts of Europe. And I qualify all these with somewhat, because nothing obviously occurs in a vacuum. I'm not going to profess this morning that uh, Luther didn't have a part in the English Reformation, but it does represent a rare confluence of courageous Christians in several different lands, all striving to recover the gospel uh, and reform the church. And they soon came to see that they were not alone. They began to encourage each other, influence each other, and often join together, but also sometimes split apart. Through the Reformation, I'm sorry, though the Reformation was not without errors, we do believe that it can still be seen as one of the clearest moments of the hand of God acting in human history. In places like Wittenberg, in Zurich, in Geneva, and as we'll see today, in places like England in the uh, 1500s. So as we heard about in our last sessions, John Wycliffe and his followers in the Church of England had begun to experience murmurings of its own reform by the end of the 1300s. In this same century, the English Parliament passed a series of laws intended to give the king authority over papal decisions in England. 
And though these measures were employed only sporadically with little effort, King Henry VIII would uh, ultimately resurrect these legislative uh, provisions nearly two centuries later uh, in his own feud with Rome. Next slide. Meanwhile, by the early 1500s, a small group of English theologians and pastors at Cambridge University began to discuss reforming the church. By 1520, these meetings gathered energy and urgency when this group encountered Luther's writings, which, though declared illegal, uh, had still been filtered into England. The Cambridge gatherings alleged to have centered on a pub called the White Horse Inn, which soon became known throughout the city as Little Germany because of the Luther aficionados meeting there. It's alleged that future heroes of the English Reformation, such as Cranmer, Ridley, Latimer, Tyndale, they all spent time together at Cambridge during those days and possibly patroned the White Horse Inn together. I just have to add on a personal note, as a police officer who knows quite well uh, and firsthand the negative things that can spill forth from pubs and taverns, <laughs> uh, it's not a quite redeeming enough quality, but a redeeming quality nonetheless to me that they're often the center of some really monumental places in our point of history. So these are places like uh, Francis Tavern, where the founding fathers met, places like the Tun Tavern, where the United States Marine Corps was formed, and uh, places, places like the Prancing Pony for Utopian folks. Uh, these can just be really uh, interesting gathering places. But, but on a bit of a serious note, uh, something that should encourage us here as Christians Consider the fruit that the Lord often produces when, gathers, uh, when believers gather together for a specific purpose. Church history bears countless examples of great movements of evangelism, intellectual life, social reform, that grew out of really small gatherings of Christians coming together for prayer, fellowship, and discussion just around a common purpose. So we should think of ways that we might gather intentionally with a small group of believers and as Hebrews calls us, to stimulate one another to good deeds. The Lord does not necessarily call all of us out to massive, world-changing revolutions on a, on a grand scale, but it could be we're called to just think and pray deliberately with one another about how improving the tone of our workplace, sharing the gospel in our neighborhood, studying in a particular area, or even starting a small ministry uh, for those in need. Next slide, please. So the early 1500s brought the further development of the English Bible, an effort led by William Tyndale. Tyndale received his degree from Magdalen College in Oxford, which was the same college that C.S. Lewis went to. I can't give a Tolkien reference without giving a C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. <laughs> and then he studied at Cambridge. He became, he became very convinced of the need for an accurate English translation of the scriptures from the original Hebrew and Greek. Not only had Wycliffe's version of 120 years earlier been banned in England, but it was also uh, imprecise or even inaccurate in a lot of places, since it had been translated from the Latin Vulgate, which was the only version permitted by the Catholic Church. Now here's why this is a bit pro problematic. As you would imagine, inaccurate translations could pose serious theological problems, and a really good example of this is the mistranslations from the Vulgate rendering of Matthew 4.17 which has Jesus say uh, in their translation, do penance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So as both Luther and Tyndale discovered in the original Greek text, the most accurate translation of this is repent instead of penance. So one can easily see this change had a tremendous consequence. Now believers learn that Christ offered forgiveness for those who repent and believe, rather than for those who try to atone for their sins 
through doing works of penance. It's a very, very uh, meaningful differentiation in the text there. So for these reasons, Tyndale realized that the people needed to read accurate versions of the Bible in their own common language. The church authorities had forbade this, and so Tyndale saw exile on the European continent to do his translation, which he completed in 1525. So by the standards of the day, his version was a model of accuracy and elegance, such that a hundred years later, the King James Version of the Bible would use about 90% of Tyndale's text. So that's pretty impressive. Meanwhile, these English Bibles began to make their way back to England and became so widely used that by 1537, Edward Fox, who was the Bishop of Hereford, told his fellow priests, and I quote, Make not yourselves the laughingstock of the world. Light has sprung up and is scattering all the clouds. The lay people now know the scriptures better than many of us. Tyndale paid the ultimate price for his efforts, uh, as many of the leaders in this time period did. Uh, an eminent historian describes this courageous man's violent end in where he lived in exile in Belgium. In May 1535, Tyndale was tempted by the squalid betrayer, Henry Phillips, who posed as one of his own converts, who lured him, who lured him out uh, where he was seized by agents of the Catholic crown and imprisoned. After long disputations, he was condemned in August 1536 for obstinate heresy, and then the following October, he was strangled, and his body was then thrown to the flames. Next slide, please. <coughs> Amid these efforts at reform, the English struggled with many of the same problems in the church that plagued Germany and elsewhere. Many priests and monks were licentious and corrupt, and they neglected their religious duties. The reign of Cardinal Wolsey exacerbated these uh, uh, resentments. <clears throat> Appointed by the Pope, Wolsey had unprecedented power in England, in both church and state. One scholar described it like this. Wolsey combined his own personal, I'm sorry, combined in his, in his own person, the Church of England, the Church of Rome, and the kingdom, kingdom of England, for he was the Archbishop of York, a cardinal and league of the Pope, and Chancellor of the realm. So in our day, just to kind of give you a, a real analogy of what that would look like, it would be like if BJ was the, both the Vice President of the United States, the Catholic Cardinal of the Archdiocese of Vermont, and the Senior Pastor of our church. So one man wielding an immense amount of power. Wolsey could appoint or dispose bishops. He could grant degrees in theology, arts, and discipline, I'm sorry, medicine, and he could discipline and dispense uh, barriers to holy orders and absolve a person from excommunication. <clears throat> uh, the English recoiled from his spectacular display of authority, but even more from Wolsey's opulent and indulgent lifestyle. As the most notorious symbol of Rome, Wolsey became the target for much of the anti-clerical sentiment in the country. <clears throat> So this sets the historical context for where we find the British Isles when a very frustrated English king began to expend, experience some pretty serious marital problems. Now, all right now, RGC, brace yourselves. So this section of history might sound like a plot line from a soap opera or a telenovela, but hold on as I work us through it, okay? Next slide. And let me apologize for the slide, okay? So my wife has been begging me to put some memes up to spice up uh, the presentation. And honestly, I, I, I searched with very serious efforts to find some really good early memes. I honestly didn't find any until we got into this period of church. So um, I have to admit, 
Some of the ones I found were pretty funny, so there you go. This is to both appease my wife and for your own your own enjoyment. <laughs> so, so, so King Henry VIII, right, he had some family compl- complications, to say the least, that went a really long way back. He had married Catherine. Thank you so much. He married Catherine, his first wife, when her first husband, Henry's older brother, had died. And the family had attained a special dispensation from the Pope for Henry to marry his older brother's widow, which was otherwise a violation of church law at the time. So the politically savvy Pope uh, sought to grant permission, but then Henry VIII and Catherine encountered some additional problems, which further complicated that solution. So while they had five children, all but one of them died in infancy, and only Mary, a daughter, survived. So though Henry had already fathered some illegitimate children, including a son with one of his mistresses, he desperately, desperately wanted his queen to bear a son in order to produce an heir to his throne. So he decided the solution was to annul the marriage to Catherine and instead marry Anne Boleyn, who had already caught Henry's eye in affection. He petitioned Rome to annul his marriage to Catherine, arguing that the actual former dispensation allowing them to marry in the first place was actually invalid because it had violated the biblical command in Leviticus 20.21. That's like the perfect picture of trying to play both sides of an issue at once. The Pope refused to grant the annulment, partly because of the reluctance to reverse another prior Pope's decision, but also because the the Holy Roman Emperor at the time, Charles V, who had invaded and captured Rome, also just happened to be Catherine's nephew and did not want his aunt to be so disgraced. In 1528, Henry, uh, frustrated that Cardinal Wolsey would not secure a better result from Rome, had actually Parliament charge Wolsey with a slew of offenses. So he leveraged the political process to make the bishop uh, a criminal. Wolsey surprisingly acquiesced uh, and was deposed, giving Henry his first victory over church authorities. But that really wasn't quite enough for King Henry. He desired just a little bit more. So by this time, Henry had impregnated his mistress, Anne Boleyn, and desperately, desperately needed an out with a child on the way. So Parliament did its part by passing a resolution declaring that the Pope had no power to grant the dispensation for Henry to marry Catherine in the first place. And then Thomas Cranmer, the new Archbishop of York and head of the Church in England, actually granted the annulment and agreed to perform the marriage ceremony of Henry and Anne Boleyn. Now, I mentioned Cranmer as a leader in the Reformation in England, and here's how this works. He was a devout, godly man who had been part of the Cambridge crowd for four more decades earlier. And Cranmer had a much nobler agenda than it was beyond helping a, you know, a really uh, garbage king. What he did was he saw that this was an opportunity to actually free the English church from the authority of Rome and bring about much-needed reform. So really using bad means to a good end. The next year, in 1534, Parliament passed the Acts of of Supremacy, which were sweeping measures of tremendous consequence, which gave the king absolute authority over the English church. Here's just a portion of the act showing just how radical it was. Remember, this is a piece of legislation that impacts the way the church operates in England. 
Our said sovereign lord and his heirs and successors, kings of the realm, shall have full power and authority from time to time to visit, repress, redress, reform, order, correct, restrain, and amend all such errors, heresies, abuses, offenses, contempts, and enormities, whatever they may be, which by any manner spiritual authority or jurisdiction ought or may lawfully be reformed. It may be repressed, ordered, redressed, corrected, restrained, or amended, most to the pleasure of Almighty God, the increase in virtue in Christ's religion, and for the conservation of the peace, unity, and tranquility of the realm. The breach with Rome through this legislation was now complete. So what does this mean? Well, granularly, this far into the Reformation, the people of England, the, the commoners, would likely have little, noticed little to no change in their worship or church life. Henry still considered himself a loyal Catholic in matters of doctrine and even practice, aside from the marriage. Uh, it was just Rome's final authority that he rejected. <clears throat> he continued to attend Mass, and even had earlier himself, King Henry, written a book against the theology of Martin Luther. Parliament further passed measures largely affirming Catholic doctrines and inculcating them in England's church. Henry's own marital misery continued, and he married or either divorced or killed about four other, four other wives until his own death in 1547. Second verse, same as the first, right, as the song goes. Uh, during these years, however, <clears throat> Archbishop Cranmer quietly and persistently placed English Bibles in churches, helped appoint reform-minded bishops, and spread orthodox notions throughout the land. Next slide, please. <clears throat> So after Henry's death in 1547, uh, nine his nine-year-old son, Edward, the son of Henry's third wife, Jane Seymour, who my wife actually made me more, wanted me to say, not the medicine woman. Just not, not the woman. Uh, so the boy king assumes a crown. And now that the king was gone and his Protestant-educated son had come to the throne, Protestantism could really uh, thrive and go forth within England. Though the boy king seems to have uh, held his faith sincerely, He's also quite young uh, and had adult advisors known as protectors helping him implement and push Protestantism uh, forward. Parliament repealed or walked back its laws that it had passed it, establishing Catholic, Catholic doctrine, and many images were removed from the churches. Priests were allowed to marry, uh, and even the, the common tongue of the church changed. <clears throat> and this was brought, back, uh, brought forth by uh, the Book of Common Prayer, which was published in 1549, written by Thomas Cranmer. The book, the book began to move the Angelican Church away from Catholic doctrines on communion. Uh, the altar was now called the table. Priests were referred to as ministers. And Christians were told in communion to feed on Christ in thy heart with faith and thanksgiving. And as you'll remember back to prior prior classes, this is in stark contrast to the Roman view of transubstantiation, uh, where the Roman Catholic Church believes that the sacraments actually become Christ's body and blood before consumption. The next year, Cranmer authored the 42 articles, which would eventually, with some revisions, become the 39 articles and the foundational confessions of the Angelican Church. The six years of Edward's reign uh, represent a time of tremendous flourishing for English Protestantism. Next slide, please. <clears throat> All right, the next character on our stage is uh, Mary Tudor, or Tudor. Bloody Mary is what most people know her as. And oh, how the times can quickly change. <clears throat> so in 1553, the 16-year-old Edward died with no heir to his throne in line of succession. 
and according to the English historians and theologian J.C. Ryle, the young king's dying prayer was, O Lord God, defend this realm from the papistry and maintain thy true religion. Uh, No doubt Edward knew that his half-sister Mary, seen on the screen here, the daughter of Henry VIII and Catherine, was next in line for the throne. And this prospect horrified English Protestants, and for really good reason. The Catholic Queen Mary took the throne determined to restore Catholicism as the religion of the land by any means necessary, and soon embarked on a rampage that earned her the dubious nickname Bloody Mary. Mary reigned for a little over five years, and she did all she could to bring England back to the authority of the Pope. She had Parliament repeal all the laws that they had 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 repealed the prior laws, which were reinstored uh, Catholic doctrine as the law of the land. She banished the Book of Common Prayer and restored the Feast uh, of the Saints and ordered married clergy to dismiss their wives. In November 1554, Reginald Pole arrived in England as a new Archbishop of Canterbury, and he was a he was a direct papal representative. <clears throat> Pole absolved England of the schism and just welcomed her right back into the fold to in the embrace of Rome. He also had a personal grudge against Protestants, as Henry VIII had murdered his mother. That always makes for uh, uh, a touchy touchy subject. <coughs> Many Protestants, fearing reprisal for their refusal to submit to the Pope, fled not only England but the continent, and this no doubt spared many, many lives. So we should all, in hearing this, reflect for a moment on how fleeting our earthly security can be. So how suddenly did the freedom and prosperity that the Protestants enjoyed under Edward in those those few handful of years get just immediately snatched, snatched away from them, and how quickly those trials came. In a matter of weeks, they found their world turned upside down. <clears throat> As Christians, we should always be thankful for the blessings of freedom, peace, and prosperity. Yet we must hold them loosely and realize they, they may not last forever, and they certainly are not guaranteed. This seems in part what Paul meant when he wrote in Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need i can do all things through him who strengthens me so these words probably encouraged many english protestants during these times as they now could read this text in plain english many began uh i'm sorry mary began her infamous burnings early in 1555 targeting faithful protestants who would not recant in all some 300 people were executed at the queen's discretion most of, them were, uh, most of the martyrs were common people, farmers, smiths, and merchants. Some eminent church leaders also went to the stake as well. Next slide, please. So bishops uh, Nic- Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer are two of those uh, mar- martyrs we're going to look at. They had, they had been among the most famous and influential figures in bringing the Reformed faith to England. Ridley was the Bishop of London and a brilliant theological mind and Latimer as an extraordinary and beloved preacher. They soon incurred the wrath of Mary, who sentenced them to be burned together at the stake in Oxford on October 16, 1555. While imprisoned and awaiting their fate, Latimer sent a moving letter to Ridley, and I'm going to read a snippet from, uh, from his letter. There is no remedy but patience. Better it is to suffer what cruelty they will put upon us than to incur God's high indignation. Wherefore, be of good cheer in the Lord, 
with due consideration what he requireth of you and what he doth promise you. Our common enemy shall do no more than God will permit him. God is faithful, which will not suffer us to be tempted above our strength. <clears throat> they kept their resolve to the very end. And as the, execu- uh, sorry, as the executioner tied Latimer and Ridley to the stake and brought the torch near to them, Latimer turned to his friend and uttered his last, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. As heirs to this legacy of faith, may we all be worthy of this example. Next slide, please. <clears throat> Mary's murderous rampage wasn't over. Thomas Cranmer, the former Archbishop of Canterbury and father of the English Church Reform, as we talked about, he had been imprisoned for not swearing allegiance to Rome. <clears throat> He'd watched his friends, Ridley and Latimer, go to the stake. Queen Mary may have also had a personal vendetta against Cranmer. As you'll remember, he looked favorably on the annulment of her mother Catherine's marriage to the king. Not content to merely imprison or even martyr Cranmer, the queen sought to make an example of his prominent leadership by forcing him to recant his Protestant convictions. Under extreme duress, and for uncertain reasons, Cranmer finally signed the recantation, which Mary's realm gleefully published and circulated around England, which reportedly caused great distress to many Protestants. This hardly spared the poor bishop's life, however, as he still received a death sentence. And this old and courageous churchman uh, was not yet through, however. Before his execution, which took place at St. Mary's Church in Oxford, just a stone throw from where Ridley and Latimer had died, Cranmer was called on to speak. After confessing his own sins and weaknesses, he repented of his recantation, and this is his words. My words were written contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart, and written for fear of death, to save my life, if it might be. And for as much as I have written many things contrary to what I believe in my heart, my hand shall be first punished. For if I may come to the fire, it shall be first burned. As for the Pope, I refuse him, for Christ's enemy and Antichrist, with all his false doctrine. <clears throat> so his conscience was clear and his honor restored, Cranmer turned to face his fate. As the flame crept toward him on the day of his execution, he actually extended his offending hand and held it steady until the fire consumed it. This may be one of the few instances in church history where a Christian literally took Christ's warning in Matthew 5.30 saying, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body going to hell. As J.C. Ryle considered Cranmer's life, his great accomplishments and significant failings, <coughs> Ryle concluded, nothing in short in all his life became him so well as the manner of him leaving him. Greatly he had sinned, but greatly he had repented. Next slide, please. So this Catholic resurgence was dramatic, intense, deadly, and, praise God, brief. A childless and unhappy Mary never enjoyed good health, and she died in 1558, uh, just after uh, uh, five years of reign in England. In the wings waited Elizabeth, the second daughter of Henry VIII, and the first of Anne Boleyn, and half-sister of Mary. The Emperor Charles V on the continent have repeatedly urged Mary to have Elizabeth killed during her reign and thus removing her line of, uh, of uh, rise to the throne. 
but even Bloody Mary had not dared to go that far. As queen, Elizabeth moved to immediately reverse the policies of her sister. She seemed to have adopted Protestantism as much from political expediency as from conviction. After all, you have to remember, if she embraced Catholicism, she would have to concede the, the fact that her own birth was illegitimate, and her crown then invalid. <clears throat> Since her mother Anne Boleyn had only become queen after Henry successfully defied the Pope. But conviction certainly seems that like it was also present. Raised largely by her stepmother, Catherine Parr, Henry's last wife, in a very warm and evangelical humanist atmosphere, Elizabeth read the New Testament in Greek every day. And so, whatever the complex motivations, Elizabeth began to restore Protestantism to England. In doing so, uh, I'm sorry, the Act of Supremacy was uh, reenacted, so she passed legislation again to support Protestantism in England. The Pope was repudiated, and with the Act of Uniformity, Cranmer's second prayer book was reinstalled as the standard for the English Church. Joyous Protestants began to return to England from their European exile. The new queen hesitated to take her Protestantism very far, however. Her main priority was restoring and maintaining national unity, and she sought to create a theologically broad and inclusive national church, at least by the standards of the day. <clears throat> her policies, known as the Elizabethan Settlement, sought to chart a via media, or middle way, between doctrines, and including such doctrinal questions in, uh, as uh, ethos and, I'm sorry, between doctrinal questions, an ethos that characterizes much of evangelicalism today. Some scholars have described the church she encouraged as Protestant in doctrine, but Catholic in, in ritual. And it still included candles, priestly robes, kneeling during communion, etc. So, in substance, very different from Catholicism, but in practice, at least visually, very similar. <clears throat> during the earlier years of her almost half-century reign, Elizabeth had some Catholics put to death for the descent from the throne and loyalty to the Pope. In a sad commentary on human nature and the dark side of church history, some Protestants saw fit to respond in kind to the persecution that they had suffered at the hand of Catholics. For the end of her reign, Elizabeth and the remaining English Catholics seem to have agreed on dis distinguishing between their religious loyalty to the Pope and their civil loyalty to their English queen. <clears throat> this anticipated one of the Reformation's eventual legacies, the development of religious toleration. Meanwhile, by later in the 16th century, some English Protestants sought to purify the Anglican Church and restore it to a more completely biblical root. These were the Puritans, and we're going to learn much more about them in our next session. So in conclusion this morning, we considered at the beginning of our class the fact that God used an evil, reprehensible man, King Henry VIII, to bring about what would ultimately be a good result, the Reformation in the English Anglican Church. We also see that the Lord allowed good men, men like Tyndale, Ridley, Latimer, Cranmer, and many others, to suffer immense evil in order to reform the church. In both cases, the Lord of history accomplishes his eternal purposes. We, in turn, can best understand and appreciate this form of eternal perspective. Another martyr of the English Reformation put it best. While John Hooper was being led to the stake, 
An old friend approached him and begged him to recant his faith, and thus spare his own life. The distraught friend reminded Hooper that his life was sweet and death was bitter. The courageous Hooper held firm, responding to his friend that eternal life was more sweet and eternal death was more bitter. What questions do you have for me this morning? Interesting, very interesting period of time. I really enjoyed studying for this week's presentation. I, I, apparently there's a TV show about this time, the, tu- the uh, Tutors. Does anybody or a tutor? I don't think that's what it's called. I haven't heard of it, but I found a lot of references online. <coughs> well, if there are no questions, let me close this up in a word of prayer. <coughs> Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful uh, for an opportunity to study you uh, your history, the works that you are sovereign over from continent to continent, Father. We're thankful for the development of your church, for the spreading of your gospel, for the, for the spreading of the love for your truth in the heart of Christians, Father. Father, we just ask that uh, the rest of this Lord's Day be a blessing uh, to us. We ask prayers and blessings upon our church leaders, uh, particularly Pastor uh, Brad, as he preaches for us today, Father, we thank you uh, so much for everything you've done, but mostly for the work done upon the cross. In your son's holy, precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Skyler. By the way, Skyler's going to be preaching his first sermon in two